thanks, Matt, for leading us in prayer for, uh, especially for Russia and, and Ukraine, as we as we see on the news and just confronted with things that are going on there. Um, I know that can, at least for me, can seem very distant. I know we're in a, a very connected world, but uh, can seem pretty distant. But a, a point of connection for us, maybe. Um, uh, Life Song for Orphans, based in Gridley, has uh, a pretty established work in Ukraine. They've been been there for a number of years, uh, caring for orphans, and so we can definitely be praying for for the uh, Ukrainian staff uh, in country there, uh, but also the Life Song staff just down the road from us. That's having to work through that and figure out uh, how to how to continue caring for orphans and, and so many others now who are going to find themselves in, um, in some great need. So uh, if, you, if you're looking for a, kind of something to maybe latch on to as you, as you pray about that, uh, that's definitely one thing that we can do. Um, way back in September, we started our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm sure everybody's counting, but this is week number 24 that we've been in Luke's gospel. And, and we've come to the point in our journey where uh, we're starting to see the pinnacle coming closer on the horizon. Um, if the schedule works out like I, I hope it will and, and plan for it to, then, then we'll be concluding our time in Luke's gospel on Easter Sunday. And we'll be looking at the resurrection of Jesus in Luke 24. Um, but it's not just our calendar that informs us that we're drawing closer to the conclusion. Um, the, the narrative of the story in Luke's gospel is doing that as well for us. So ever since chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem. And so everything really that has taken place since the end of chapter 9 has been in that context this journey toward Jerusalem. And, and we've been told a couple times that, uh, that this journey would culminate with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, uh, the, uh, for today, the stories in today's passage take place in and around Jericho, which is just a single day's journey from Jerusalem. So what Jesus has been marching towards, he is very close to getting to. Um, but before we get to that arrival in Jerusalem and we get to that last Passion Week, as it's sometimes called, uh, Luke has chosen to include some stories from Jesus' last days before going into Jerusalem that'll provide a good summary of all that he's been trying to communicate so far. So before the intensity picks up with Jesus entering into Jerusalem, Luke wants to make sure that we've clearly understood what, what he's been trying to tell us. He, he wants to make sure that we clearly understand the purpose of Jesus' life and how the final week of Jesus' life will be the culmination of that purpose. So, in a way, you might say that Luke wants to make sure that we see Jesus correctly this morning. So what, what stood out to me today in, in all three of these sections that we'll look at is, is this, uh, this reference to seeing Jesus, either physically or spiritually. These stories all have to do with seeing or not seeing Jesus. And so that's the thread that's going to tie everything together this morning. 
And so ideally, at the end of this section, we'll have a clear vision of Jesus so that we're ready for all that's going to take place then when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, that that final week of his life. So if you haven't already, I would encourage you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18. And we are picking it up in verse 31. So this first section that we'll look at today, it's the, the third time that Jesus has spoken about his upcoming death and resurrection. So Luke 18, 31 says this. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So when I, when I think about this third uh, proclamation of his death and resurrection and, and compare it to the other two that Luke has already given to us, there's some similarities and some differences in the three of those. Uh, the difference that stands out the most to me is how much more detailed this third description is than the other two. So, so the first time, what Jesus said was that, that he would suffer, be rejected, be killed, and, and then raised to life on the third day. Um, the second time, Jesus just simply said that he'd be delivered into the hands of men. But then this third time, he talks about being mocked and shamefully treated, spit upon, and flogged. That's some pretty specific detail, not just that he's going to suffer and be killed, but how that is going to come about. And, and, and between Luke and the other gospel writers, they all confirm that all four of those things happened to Jesus upon his arrest. So these specific details that Jesus gives us this third time do come to pass, as we might expect. So this wasn't just Jesus giving a general idea of what would happen to him like he had done the other two times. As, as they drew near to Jerusalem, as they are just a day's journey from the city, he talked very specifically about what would take place in that city. So that, that's kind of a difference and this third one is unique in that way, but there's also some similarities with, with the first uh, two times Jesus spoke about this. Previously, Jesus had talked about certainty regarding what would take place. It wasn't this might happen, but, but this will happen when we get there. And, and here again, Jesus said, it's been written and it will be accomplished. There's, there's certainty yet again. Um, previously, as Jesus spoke, the disciples had trouble understanding what he was saying. And here again, we see that Jesus' disciples are still not grasping what he's telling them. And I can't decide if that surprises me or not. I was going back and forth on this as I was studying. You know, on the one hand, the disciples have been traveling with Jesus longer now. They've, uh, longer than the last time he spoke about his death. Um, They'd had time to process the words that he'd spoken before. Um, So part of me thinks they really should more clearly understand this time. But then on the other hand, this concept of a suffering Messiah, 
a suffering son of man. It was so foreign. That concept was so foreign to the community of, of Jews, uh, to their expectations of what should happen, that, that they might never fully comprehend what Jesus was saying before it actually happened. And so it's like, I kind of go back and forth. How do I think the disciples should respond here? But regardless of that, how they did respond is that they didn't understand. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And it's in their continued lack of understanding that I think we find our first takeaway regarding seeing Jesus. The disciples saw Jesus plenty. They traveled with him day in, day out. They saw him but they still lacked understanding. So they saw him, but they didn't understand. I mean, at this point, they'd been with Jesus three to four years. So they'd seen him perform the miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. And they've probably seen him perform miracles that aren't recorded for us in the Gospels. And they've heard Jesus' teaching that is recorded in the Gospels, and probably more teaching that's not recorded in the Gospels. Uh, I mean, they, they had been with Jesus for so long that, that they, I'm sure they knew his mannerisms, his personality distinctives, his favorite words and phrases and sayings and favorite food and probably exactly how he liked his coffee, right? I mean, maybe not the last one, but we get the point. Like, they've been with Jesus. They probably know him to a degree pretty well. And yet, when it came to this most important point about the ultimate reason for which he came to earth, they're just as confused as ever. It's still hidden from them. They can't see it. It seems to be the case that familiarity with Jesus didn't necessarily lead to understanding of Jesus for the disciples. They had seen Jesus regularly, but not understood. And, and so I think about us, right? For some of us, we've maybe lived a big chunk of our lives around Jesus. Maybe the vast majority of our lives around Jesus. Learned about Jesus at church. Studied him in the Bible. Seen Jesus displayed through family and friends. Maybe taken a class on Jesus' character. And, and while those things are great and, and have the potential to have such a huge impact on us, it doesn't automatically mean that we understand Jesus. I mean, we see that with the disciples. They'd been there. They'd traveled with him. They, they had the front row seat, and they still didn't get it. So even though we've been around Jesus for a long time, if that describes us, we, we ought to examine our understanding of him according to how he's presented here, according to the words that he says here in our Bibles. You know, part of, the, part of the downfall of living in today's age is that there's so much that comes at us relentlessly. I mean, a, a moment of true silence is such a rare thing today. And, and it's, it's so rare that when we get those moments, we might reach for our phones because it makes us uncomfortable to, to have that type of moment available to us. And there's so many, so there's so many messages and, and worldviews coming at us that can, can just subtly impact our understanding of Jesus in, in ways which we might not even realize. And so 
So in the midst of a shifting culture and, and, and when we think about our own changing seasons of life, um, it's important that we remain grounded on the word of God so that our understanding of Jesus remains grounded in the truth. That's so important for us. And, and you know, I, in saying that, I, I, don't want to, to, I don't want to discount the work of God in this area through the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, not at all. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals God to us. It's the Holy Spirit who takes the message about Jesus, which is foolishness to the world, and makes it wisdom to us. But the primary way the Holy Spirit does that is often through the Word of God, illuminating as we read, giving us that wisdom and understanding. So, so while we might know a lot about Jesus or think that we know a lot about Jesus, we have to be sure to come back to the word again and again in order that our understanding of Jesus would be true. Not just knowing facts or being able to talk the talk, but truly understanding. So we see the disciples kind of in that boat. They saw Jesus, but they didn't understand him. After that, we move to a scene where someone couldn't see Jesus and yet did understand. So look with me here at verse 35 of Luke 18. It says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So when I read this story, man, just so many questions that, <laughs> that I would love to ask. Uh, was this guy blind from birth or, or did he become blind during his life? I, mean, I don't know how vital that information is, but I just I wonder about that. Um, uh, was he always in this location begging or was it just because it was this time of year when all the pilgrims were journeying to Jerusalem and the road was busy and, and he just recognized it's a good time to beg here? You know, is he always there? Is it just a seasonal kind of thing? Again, not, probably not important, but I wonder. Um, but perhaps most importantly, what I wonder is, what did this man know about Jesus prior to this encounter? What did he know about him? I mean, at this point in Jesus' ministry, He's just about to the last week of his life. At this point, it's quite possible that this blind man had previously heard about Jesus from others who were talking about him. Jesus' miracles and teachings were surely being talked about by the pilgrims that were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover. So I wonder if he had heard some of those stories before this encounter. It seems possible. I would probably say it's even likely that he had heard those things. And so in any case, the, the blind man heard a commotion going by and, and a, 
upon inquiring about what was happening, he found out Jesus was passing by. And when he found out that it was Jesus, he called out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David. The reason I wonder how much he knew about Jesus is because that term, son of David, is not an ordinary term. Right? The ordinary way to refer to Jesus is to say Jesus of Nazareth, which is what, uh, which is what those present told the blind man, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. But to use the term son of David is to ascribe to Jesus a messianic role. Uh, so when you go back through the Old Testament, um, I can give just a few examples here. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God spoke to David, and he said that an offspring would come from him who would establish the kingdom and sit on the throne of the kingdom forever, a son of David. Uh, the great messianic proclamation in Isaiah 9 talks about sitting on the throne of David. Um, uh, Jeremiah 23, God promises that he will raise up a righteous branch from David who will save his people, who, who will be this Messiah. Um, in Jeremiah 33, the branch from David executes righteousness and justice. Uh, in Ezekiel 37, it's, it's prophesied that God's people would dwell together forever with David reigning over them. So I don't know if this blind man knew what the term son of David meant or if he was just repeating something that, that he'd heard from someone else, but it was sure a loaded title and it seems like he did know what it meant because Jesus stops and, and heals him and then commends him for his faith. And I think it's rather ironic that those traveling with Jesus rebuked the blind man and told him to be quiet. I mean, can we catch the irony there? We're, now, we're not told specifically that, that the, uh, so the disciples would have been traveling with Jesus. We're not told that the disciples specifically were the ones who tried to quiet this blind man. But Luke does use the same word here, rebuke, that he used just a chapter ago when the children were coming to Jesus and the disciples rebuked those who were bringing children. So, so if that's so, if the disciples were the ones telling this guy to be quiet, there's, there's some incredible irony in the fact that the blind man who had never seen Jesus was told to be quiet by those who followed Jesus even though the blind man was correctly proclaiming Jesus' identity while the disciples who followed Jesus repeatedly didn't understand. I mean, I, that, that's ironic, that those who should have under, understood didn't, and the one who'd never seen Jesus did understand, and they were telling him to be quiet anyway. Man. So when Jesus hears the man call out, he, he, he stops which is incredible when you think about it because for 10 chapters, Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem and it's, it's certain, nothing's going to stop him. And yet, here he stops, he recognizes this man's faith and he restores his sight. I mean, man, that, that's incredible to think about. And, and immediately, once the man's sight was restored, he praises God, he follows Jesus, and then the crowds see it and they praise God too. And so what I, what I think we see in that story is that even those who haven't had much exposure to Jesus can call out to him and, and receive their sight. 
receive understanding, not just physical sight like this man, but, but spiritual sight, spiritual understanding. And maybe, maybe if you think about yourself, you feel like you fit better with the description of this blind man than, than with the disciples. I mean, maybe you've not had a lot of experience in your life learning about Jesus through, through the Bible or church or, or the example of others or things like that. It doesn't matter how much you do or don't know about Jesus. If you call out to him, he'll open your eyes. I mean, that's what we see here. If we call out to Jesus, he will open our eyes. From, um, from the perspective of the society at that time, this man would have been toward the bottom of the barrel. I mean, there's just no way around that. He couldn't care for himself. He, he couldn't contribute to society like others could. And yet when he called out to Jesus, Jesus stopped in his tracks and made him well. There's something powerful taking place there. And I would say that there's not, there's not a person alive whom Jesus would not stop for in the middle of the road if they called out to him. It's not just this blind man. It would be anybody. If we call out to Jesus, he will stop and open our eyes. A, a, a complete understanding of him is not required. All that's required is faith in him. That's what we see in this blind man, and, and I think that speaks to us as well. We don't have to have it all figured out. We just have to simply call out like this blind man did. And kind of just as a, as a quick aside before we move on to, to the last section this morning, I think there's a good challenge in here to, to not be like those who rebuked the blind man and told him to be quiet. May we never be found to be keeping someone from calling out to Jesus, whether that's through our words directly or our attitudes or, or through inactivity on our part, whatever it might be. Uh, to do so is to completely miss the purpose of Jesus. To, to do so is to see Jesus with our eyes like the disciples did, but, but not understand him. We ought not hinder those who are calling out to Jesus. So that's just, that, that's a bonus point for you there. That's not in the notes or anything this morning. But, but as we get to chapter 19, we, we, in this final story that we'll look at today, it, it's uh, about a person whose physical sight was just fine, but yet still could not see Jesus. And because he couldn't see Jesus, he tried to find a way to see him. So look with me at Luke chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, 
since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I always wonder how, how famous this story would be if it weren't for the kids' song that many of us learned when we were younger. Anybody singing it in their head as I was reading that? Right? In, uh, in Nina's Sunday school class, they, they talked about this story a couple weeks ago, and so Melanie came home singing about Zacchaeus, a wee little man, right? A wee little man was he. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, in so many ways, I think this story about Zacchaeus is, is meant to be read in tandem with the previous story about the blind man. The blind man was at the bottom of society, the chief tax collector named Zacchaeus was quite wealthy and would have been in the upper echelon of Roman society. And yet at the same time, he was still one of the outcasts of Jewish society because of his collaboration with Rome in the collection of taxes. So it's kind of a complicated situation for him. Some people hate his guts, but yet he's probably running around in circles that are quite elite. So Again, with the blind man, he couldn't see Jesus because of his eyesight. Well, here with Zacchaeus, he couldn't see Jesus because he's vertically challenged, right? Isn't that that politically correct way to say it? He's short, right? He was short, so he couldn't see Jesus. Uh, man, and, and again, like, like with the blind man, I, I wonder, what, what did Zacchaeus know about Jesus? Did he long to see him just because he's intrigued, or did he already have faith in him? And my hunch is that he was just simply intrigued at that point. Um, but we're not told directly. But either way, Zacchaeus scurried up the tree, tries to get a glimpse of Jesus. But what we see in the story is that it was actually Jesus who got a glimpse of him. In the story, the song, it's all about Zacchaeus trying to see Jesus. But as Luke highlights here, it's Jesus that saw Zacchaeus in the tree. So while the blind man called out to Jesus in faith, Jesus called out to Zacchaeus and prompted him toward faith. So we really have some interesting comparison taking place here. I mean, Jesus told Zacchaeus, he didn't ask him, he told him, I'm going to your house today. And whatever happened to Zacchaeus' house that day, man, it, it, it changed Zacchaeus forever. It changed him forever. And we know that because, because his faith in Jesus showed itself through activity, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. He didn't just say, yes, Jesus, I believe you. I mean, he repented of his former way of life and he exercised his faith by, by using his wealth to make right the wrongs that he had done through his line of work. I mean, he says, uh, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He had defrauded people. That, that's how he became rich. So, so we see his, his faith in action here. Zacchaeus, before Jesus saw him, was lost and floundering in his life. I mean, maybe it looked on the outside like he had things together because of his great wealth, but, but his quick decision to abandon his old way of life and follow Jesus, I think, shows us that things on the inside weren't what they looked like on the outside in his life. I mean, Jesus found Zacchaeus and transformed his life. He, he brought salvation to him. 
And and it's in Jesus' finding of Zacchaeus that Luke gives us in verse 10 the summary statement for all of Jesus' ministry. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So as Jesus is just about to enter Jerusalem and everything that's going to take place over that last week of his life, that's what we got to remember. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's the key to understanding everything that takes place on this journey to Jerusalem. That's the key to understanding all that's going to take place once he arrives in Jerusalem. He came to seek and to save the lost. I think it's interesting that in all three of the stories today, again, I said sight, seeing is that thread. People either saw Jesus or they were looking for Jesus. The disciples saw him every day. The blind man wanted to see Jesus. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. But for all the the differences and comparisons in their stories, there's one gigantic similarity that, that cannot be missed because it is of utmost importance. Jesus sought them and saved them. So yeah, they're looking for Jesus, but Jesus was the one who sought them. For the disciples, we're not talked it's not given to us here, but if you go all the way back to when Jesus first called them, he sought them, right? He called them as fishermen to come follow him. Um, for the blind man, Jesus saw him and stopped his traveling so that he could call out to him and heal him. And of course, with Zacchaeus, Jesus looked up in the tree and saw him and called him to come down and welcome him into his home. And so, so I hope, like all these, uh, all, all these individuals, we are looking and longing to see Jesus. I, I hope we're willing to shout along the roadside and climb up into a tree, do whatever it takes to see Jesus. I hope, I hope that is our attitude. But what is even more important is the fact that Jesus is the one who sees us. That is what is, what is of utmost importance. He seeks and saves the lost. So whether the lost is a chief tax collector or a blind man or children or a leper or a poor man or an older son or a younger son or a man with dropsy or a demon-possessed woman or a mute demoniac or a distracted woman named Martha or a Samaritan or a demon-possessed boy or a needy crowd or a dying 12-year-old daughter or a 12-year-long bleeding woman or a man possessed by a legion of demons, or a prostitute, or a widow, or the servant of a centurion, or a common tax collector, or a paralytic, or some ordinary fisherman, Jesus seeks and saves them. And with that list, I've just gone backwards through all of Luke's gospel. And we see it over and over and over and over again. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. That's the theme that Luke has been driving home. So if we've gotten anything from the first 19 chapters of Luke's gospel, it is that not only does Jesus seek and save the lost, but none are so far lost that they can't be found by him. I mean, nobody in that list was too far gone. And there were some people who were really far gone, if we can call it that. But yet Jesus still sought them. 
and saved them. And that, man, that, that's great news for everyone in Luke's gospel who, who came into contact with Jesus. That's great news for everyone throughout history who've been found by Jesus. And man, that's great news for you and me today. That we too are not so far lost that we can't be found by Jesus. I mean, he's proved it over and over and over again. And not, not only found by Jesus, but saved by Jesus. And that, the, the saving, will be the thrust of the final week of Jesus' life. I mean, that, that's what it's going to focus on, is what is required to save those who are lost. So as, as we spend our last seven weeks in Luke's gospel, may we, may we see Jesus and understand Jesus for who he truly is. And that, that's, the, that's the purpose of why Luke writes. Jesus is the master seeker, and he's the master saver. Or you might better say, the savior, right? And that's what we're going to focus on this morning as we end, as we sing a couple songs about this one who seeks and saves us, that he is indeed our savior. So would you stand with me? Let's, let's close in prayer and give God thanks for that, and then, as I said, continue in worship, proclaiming that truth. Father, we come to you this morning uh, just humbled and appreciative that you seek and save the lost. We are, apart from you, just as lost as anybody's ever been. Yet you reach out to us, you call us to yourself, you, you do what's necessary to bring us to yourself, and we're so thankful for that. And it's not just that you find us, that you see us, but that you save us. And especially as we go through these last seven weeks and really look in detail at the details of what that saving entailed, what it, what it cost you and required of you. Uh, would you continue speaking to us, drawing us to yourself, giving us a deeper love and appreciation for you? God, you are our savior. May we, may we not forget that in how we live and how we worship you and how we treat those around us. My, my prayer is that each one here would not just know in their mind or have heard it said before that you are the Savior, but that there would be an understanding, that, an understanding that only comes from firsthand experience. So God, would you work in our hearts this morning? Would you bring us closer to yourself and continue to whisper into our ear that you are our Savior? We give you the praise this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.